Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church you connect with, you belong here. Big things are happening at Collective this fall, and we'd love for you to be a part of them. Join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and 11 a.m. at 5103 Pegasus Court for church that doesn't feel like your typical church. We hope to see you there. Now let's get into Sunday's message. So when I was in college and for a few years after graduating, I lived in Johnson City, Tennessee, which is located in the northeast corner of the state. Anybody know where Johnson City is? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm going to talk about you in a second, so watch out. Um, so that part of Tennessee, it's kind of a lesser known part. Like It's not one of the bigger cities, but it is known for a few things. Uh, the first and probably the most popular is that it's mentioned in the song Wagon Wheel, uh, made famous by Darius Rucker, right? There's the line, but he's heading west from the Cumberland Gap to Johnson City, Tennessee. Okay, hold on one second. I'm never going to reference country again on stage. I promise you. All you people in Jefferson have been waiting five years for this moment. It's not going to happen again. <laughs> but you know, if you're from Johnson City, you've been there, you, sh- you, you hear that song. And what ends up happening is typically they shout it out because it's like, oh, someone knows of Johnson City. The next biggest reason people know of that part of Tennessee is because of the Bristol Motor Speedway. This is a NASCAR short track. I think they call it the fastest half mile. Um, it is actually pretty, pretty awesome. But it's also the fourth largest venue in America and the 10th largest venue in the world. It seats up to 153,000 people, which is bigger than most of the counties. And so imagine 153,000 NASCAR fans all coming to Johnson City for a weekend. It's chaos. Another thing that Northeastern Tennessee is known for is Mountain Dew, because it was actually invented there as a mixer in the 1930s for cocktails, which let me say this, Mountain Dew is my favorite drink. And so when I moved down there, it was like going to heaven. Uh, I don't care what color it is. I know it's not a natural color. I don't care. I'm going to drink it anyways. I'll drink the blue one and the purple one and the red one. It's all delicious. It is a gift from God. (laughs) Now, and you can't have opinions about it. I don't really care. Uh, Now, if if you'd never been to northeastern Tennessee before and I said, hey, guess three things about northeastern Tennessee, you probably would have went, well, probably country music, probably NASCAR, and probably Mountain Dew, right? It's pretty typical for that area. But there's another thing this region is known for, and that is storytelling. The National Storytelling Center is located in Jonesboro, Tennessee. It was about 10 minutes from our college. There's a local state school down there called ETSU that has a master's degree in storytelling. That is a real thing. CT, one of our overseers, has that degree. You should ask him about it. He did some really fun things, I think, involving the Civil War. You got to ask him. Uh, but it is real. I've seen the paper. It's not a, it's not a made-up thing. When he first told us, I was like, that's, that's not a real thing. Um, but... <laughs> It is. He graduated. Um, And every year in the fall, actually in the next few weeks, they hold the National Storytelling Festival, where thousands of people from all over the world come to share and listen to stories. It's, It's pretty cool. And there's nothing better than a good story, right? A great story pulls on us and immerses us into another world while we feel connected to ours at the same time. A great story bonds us to the characters or the storyteller. A great story can elicit feelings of sorrow and joy and pain and wonder inside of us. A great story can impact us to the point of change. It can bring us healing. And this is how we were designed as people. Did you know that God created us 
to connect to stories. Check this out. Studies have shown that our brains are hardwired to convey emotions through stories. And a compelling story actually triggers a strong neurological response. So when we're engaged by an effective story, we feel as though we are participants. Right? We actually put ourselves into the middle of that story. Studies have also found that stories, or studies have also found that stories bond us to other people through empathy. And they connect us to other people and what they are feeling. It also activates the part of our brain that leads to action. There's also been research using functional magnetic resonance imaging, Im imaging or fMRI, uh, which is a technique they use to track blood flow in the brain to see which areas are uh, impacted and active at certain times. And research has demonstrated that the activity in a listener's brain follows and mirrors the activity in the brain of the storyteller. In other words, listeners' brains sync up with a storyteller. And specific areas of this brain will kind of come in and out as these stories come in and out, as they share emotions, the emotional side starts to connect. And as they share things that are scary, the part of your brain connects to that. And they follow along as these stories are told. And so putting it very simply, stories connect us to the people around us. They connect our feelings and our emotions. They connect our experiences and our memories, our joys and our heartaches. I mean, storytelling is an essential part of what makes us human. And right now, we're in this series called Your Story Matters because we believe that we all have a story to tell. You have a story to tell. Not a perfect story, not a complete story, but a messy and a real and a beautiful story of what God is doing in your life, even if you don't know it, even if you aren't even sure that's true yet. And so the real challenge for this series, and DJ mentioned it earlier, is for us to share our stories, to share what God is doing in our lives. But ultimately, the real challenge is for us to choose vulnerability, to be real about our brokenness and what God is doing in our lives. And that is scary. The word vulnerable, by definition, means capable of being wounded, open to risk and damage. Right? Being vulnerable means you could get hurt. And for some of us, we have a lot of good reasons to not be vulnerable. We have a lot of good reasons to be guarded. For a lot of us, we can point to people that we trusted at some point in our life, people we thought were friends or people we thought had our best interests at heart, people we thought loved us, but they delivered wounds as if they were an enemy. And the thing is, we don't want to go through that again. And I get that. But one thing I know is that when vulnerability is part of the church and our faith and our relationships and our communities, good things happen. Life change happens. Healing happens. Faith happens. And church the way God intended it to be happens. And that's what we want. And so let's start with this. This is the first thing to write down. This is kind of the big picture as we kick off this series, as we fully dive in, uh, write this down. When you let Jesus into your story, it changes everything. When you let Jesus into your story, it changes everything. When you put Jesus into the center of it all, the good, the bad, and everything in between, when you allow him to enter into your life, it will never be the same. Jesus changes everything. The Bible is full of stories like this, Stories like the father who has doubts when it comes to his faith and Jesus' ability to help his son. But he approaches Jesus anyways, and he says, Jesus, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. And Jesus does something miraculous. 
and saves his son. And you know that this father's faith is never the same again. There's a story of a woman caught in the act of adultery, and she's dragged before Jesus by the religious leaders of the town. And they tell Jesus that she should be stoned to death because that is what the law requires. But Jesus picks her up, gives her grace and a second chance, and tells her to go on and live a different life. And you know that her life is never the same. There's a man named Zacchaeus who is hated by everyone because he's a dishonest tax collector. But through one interaction with Jesus, he realizes that he's loved and that he's meant for so much more. And we actually read that he changes his entire life. It's never the same again. There are people in the Bible who are healed, called, forgiven, challenged, and loved, and their lives are never the same again. Because when you let Jesus into your story, everything changes. Probably my favorite example of this in the Bible comes from a woman that Jesus meets at a well. Jesus and his disciples are on their way from the region of Judea to the region of Galilee. And to get there, they have to go through Samaria. Think about it like traveling from Montgomery County to Washington County. You've got to go through Frederick. And while they are in Samaria, they take a quick break at a place called Jacob's Well. And we're going to pick up the story in John 4, starting in verse 7. This is what it says. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink, right? And this makes sense. It's hot. It's the desert. Uh, Jesus isn't necessarily walking around with like a bucket to get water. And a woman comes up there to get water and says, hey, I'm thirsty. Can you help me? The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now, one thing we have to understand about this moment is that this woman has no idea who Jesus is. To her, he's just some guy sitting at a well in the middle of the day. But there are some some major social implications that are going on here. The first is that Jews and Samaritans were enemies. In fact, they hated each other so much that Jews would typically walk around Samaria instead of going through it because of how much they hated each other. They would take the long way to go north. The second is that Jesus asking for water would have been a big deal because the Old Testament of the Bible had made it clear in the very beginning there is a difference between men and women, but people had manipulated this and taught that men are better than women. And so in that culture, men didn't talk to women in public. In fact, if you were a rabbi and your wife or daughter said hi to you in public, you weren't allowed to respond. And that's not in the Bible. It's something that they made up. They twisted to get there. Also, if my kids said hi to me in public and I ignored them, they would lose their minds, right? They would run up to me. They would grab my arms. They'd start pulling on me. They'd like grab me by the face and be like, hi, dad, hi, dad. And if I still didn't respond to them, they would just burn everything to the ground. And so this is a (laughs) terrible idea. Don't do this. So the story continues. Verse 10, it says, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water, right? If you only knew the gift God has for you, if you only knew the life he has for you, right? He's saying, if you only knew the grace that's awaiting you, if you only knew who I was, I would change your life and you wouldn't be worried about water in a well, But the woman isn't picking up what Jesus is putting down because she still thinks he's just some weirdo at a well. And so Jesus explains, 
Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And what Jesus is doing is he's comparing these earthly things to eternal things, right? Things of this world, like water, to the things of heaven, living water. What he's saying is these things don't compare. The water you get from this well will only satisfy you for a few minutes, but then you'll be thirsty again. But the living water that I offer you will leave you feeling refreshed forever. And that's the difference between a life with Jesus and a life without Jesus. And so Jesus is ultimately saying to her, if you knew who I was, if you knew what I offered you, you would allow me into that part of your life. If you let me into your story, your life will never be the same but she still doesn't quite get it. She says, please, sir, give me this water that I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. And so ultimately, she wants what Jesus is offering, but she isn't grasping that he's talking about eternal and spiritual things, forever things. She thinks he's talking about these temporary and worldly things. And so Jesus tries a different route. He says, go and get your husband. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. And Jesus isn't trying to shade this woman, right? He's not trying to hurt her feelings or anything like that. This is part of her story. This is truth. This is part of who she is. She's an outcast. She's been thrown aside. In fact, if you read earlier in the story before we picked it up, it was about noon when this interaction happened. Nobody gets water from a well at noon. It's the hottest part of the day. Typically, people go early in the morning to make sure they have water all day long, or in the evening to make sure the next morning they wake up with water. Plus, it's cooler outside. The only reason someone would go to a well at noon was to avoid seeing people. More likely, it was because people avoided wanting to be seen with her. But Jesus sees her. And he knows that she has sought out meaning and love and comfort in the arms of multiple men, worldly and temporary things like the water in the well. And because of this, she has experienced pain and brokenness. She's felt emptiness and loneliness. And that's led her to the point where she isn't even trying to do things right in her life anymore or in her current relationship. She's just living with this dude, probably waiting for more heartache and pain, not thinking she's valuable enough to actually get married to this guy. And this is her story, right? This is her story before Jesus gets a hold of it and changes everything. Skipping ahead a few verses, check this out. This is what it says. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And so we're seeing it. She's starting to pick up what Jesus is putting down. She's starting to realize Jesus is talking about these heavenly things, these these eternal things. And she says, hey, I know there is a Savior coming. And I bet it'll make sense when he gets here. But then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. And this is the only time prior to when Jesus is put on trial where he outright says, I am the savior of the world, right? Jesus tells her, I am that living water that you are craving. I am the one that has come to rescue you. I'm the one that God sent to change the world. And as soon as she hears this, The woman left her jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. 
You know, one of the reasons I love this story is that Jesus doesn't magically change her past, right? When she realizes that he is the Messiah, he doesn't snap his fingers and like force everybody to forget what had happened, right? Her story is her story, but he says, I know what you've been through. I know what you've done. I know what you are searching for and haven't found yet. I know what you need and I am right here. And this woman goes back to where she lives and it says she tells everyone what happened. Right? She doesn't try to hide everything. She says, he knew everything about me. And here's the thing. The town knew everything about her as well. Right? They knew her story. They knew what she had done. They knew the way she was living her life. She says, he knew everything about me. Right? He knew I messed up. He knew that I made mistakes. He knew that I screwed this whole thing up and that I was still screwing things up. But he still told me that he loved me. Right? He still told me that he was the Messiah. He was the one that came to rescue me from my sin. He still showed me grace. And that is her story now. She's no longer the woman who has had five husbands and is living with a new man. She is the woman who has had five husbands and is living with a new man who Jesus came to rescue and who Jesus loves. And that is a much better story, isn't it? And that is just like our first story this week, Dimity's story. Check this out. I grew up in Fairfax City. We lived there forever. My parents managed uh, apartment buildings. I didn't go to church. Uh, well, we, my parents dropped us off on Sundays. I guess it was to give them a break. I don't know. My parents fought a lot. Um, my parents were alcoholics, like liquor alcoholics. And then we moved. We actually moved out of the apartments because my parents separated. There was no visit, you know, we go every other weekend to dad. I had to beg to go to dad's house. We, we, my mom bought a townhouse and then she got sick and they took a kidney and then um, they found out she had it in her bone marrow in her leg and then she got a tumor on her head that you could actually see and she died in the house in her room. I became the caregiver. I became the adult. I cooked, I cleaned, I went grocery shopping. Yeah, and so that led to you meeting Richard. Richard, yeah. Uh, and getting pregnant. And getting pregnant. I dropped out of school. I got my GED, but that was just because I did it for my dad. Um, how old was Christopher when Richard left? Six months. He did not want to be a dad. So he was taking my car and going and partying with friends, taking the car seat and throwing it in the trunk and driving girls around and doing things. And he was, you know, while I was home, taking care of a baby. Yeah, as a teenager. As a teenager, yeah. I just wanted to be loved unconditionally. I was never good enough for my mom. Never good enough anywhere. I just wanted someone to love me forever and that baby loved me forever and wouldn't leave me so I was very excited about it yeah. I wanted him so badly I needed him so badly fast forward about a year about a year and a half and you meet dad but then he started you know we started hanging out and before we knew it, we I got my first apartment, um, subsidized, you know, because I was poor and single parent. And um, then I got pregnant again. 
So then you have me, obviously mm-hmm. the best of all the children. <laughs> yes. Um, a few years later, Jennifer's born. You know, you have three kids. Oh, I went from being raised by alcoholics to marrying an alcoholic. But it was beer. Every holiday was hard. There was a lot of drinking. I just wanted to keep my family together. So I never even thought about divorce because, first of all, I couldn't financially take care of my children by myself. It was just, that was the way life was, you know? And we just kind of make the best of it. Eventually, Alyssa's born, eight years after Jennifer. And so eventually the Murrays invite us to church I've told my perspective on that story, but what was that like for you to be invited and then eventually say yes? It was very uncomfortable because Sundays were our only day to sleep in. Get up early, I have no nice clothes. I can't go to church, the church that I knew what church was. We got became friends with them, and so I knew that life was hard for them, but they had this joy that I wanted. I'd never felt, and I thought, why not? You know, and maybe they'll just stop bugging me. So we went. It was amazing. There was normal people there. No one was dressed up, you know? No one was, they all looked like me. And there was this guy, this band on stage, a band with drums, guitars, all that stuff. And there's this long blonde haired dude playing the guitar and singing. And I was like, what is this? But when they started singing and playing for the first time in my entire life, I felt this love, this peace, this weird feeling I have never felt, ever. And I couldn't stop crying. I don't even know what the message was about (laughs) at all, but I knew that I needed this. We went to group together, we went to couples groups. You know, the way I tell the story is like, we just started going. Started serving? Yeah. Because we are servers, We that's just our nature. We are, from the beginning, before even church. We always help people, we always, you know. And then we got baptized, um, which I was hoping that maybe I would never cuss again and I would never have any bad thoughts again and I would just be this pure little angel and be able to just, ah, you know. And that didn't happen. Everything fell apart. Everything came to light. Everything that was in the darkness that, that I wasn't seeing all came to light and everything just exploded. What was the first kind of sign of that? Um, He wasn't coming home at night because he started doing whatever he wanted to do. And I didn't know what to do. We were fighting before church. So we started going separately. Everything that was going on, what he was doing, what was going on, you know, I just needed to know. And it consumed me and he wouldn't tell me anything. He would always, always plead the fifth. So someone told me, just call on Jesus every time you get in that headspace where you just can't stop thinking about it. So that's what I did. I was like, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. I can't do this by myself. I can't. I can't. I, I, this is beyond what I can do, and I don't understand, and I don't know what to do. It would have been really easy at this point to give up, because ultimately you're back where you were mm-hmm. pre-Jesus. 
So why didn't you give up? Because when your husband cheats on you and, and leaves you for a 25-year-old, um, you wonder, what's wrong with me? Am I good, you know, again, am I good enough? I wasn't good enough for him, but I was good enough for God. And he just kept picking me up every day and letting me know we can do this. And I also didn't want to screw up my kids any more than I already had, which I didn't really realize I had done. <laughs> sure. But I wanted to make sure that they had food and they had their mom, although I was not mentally there. I was physically there, but emotionally and mentally, I was not because I was so consumed with still, what was he doing? Who is he with? What's going on? I just wanted my family back. I just wanted, I was even willing to take a crappy family over no family. My prayer was bring my husband home, heal my marriage. And it, yeah, and then he had children with someone else. And that broke my heart, broke my heart. Yeah, and one of the things that you've talked about, one of the things that in your story is this pursuit of being loved. But one of the things that you shared with me was in that, you started to realize where love really came from. Because I started seeing things. Things started changing and not like that. It came in jobs. It came in people. People came into my life that blessed us. He's taking care of my children. Things could have turned out completely different. You wouldn't have gone to college. Sure. Christopher was already in the military. So many things were out of my control. I couldn't, I couldn't make anything happen or not happen. So I relied on God. And we go to start a church in Frederick, uh, which is close, which was nice for you. <laughs> you just wanted us to be closer. I was so humbled by the fact that a sinner like me was so much garbage and such a mess that he would use my child, my child, to reach people and to talk about him. That was like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. God has given you this great gift and he's given me this great gift that I did not deserve. I did not deserve it. I was... <laughs> but he loves me just the way I am in all my mess and all my ugly and all my terrible, terrible stuff. And I don't want to live without that because I would, I couldn't. So if there was like one thing that you could say to um, someone who's going through what you're going through or at least um, kind of experiencing some of the highs and lows that you've, you've experienced in your, in your life, what, what, would you, what would you say to them? What would you want them to hear? Don't give up because he's got your back. You'll get through that season and there'll be another season around the corner. There will be, but you will be stronger for it and you'll be able to handle it better. And you will take that time to know that, look, I have no control in this situation, but God does. A few months into collective launching, um, it was actually, I think it was like the first Easter, 
you're serving in collective kids. Dad is also serving in collective kids. Jennifer and Alyssa are serving in collective kids, and Dad uh, brought Jacob and Michaela, you know, his two kids from the relationship that came out of the divorce, my half siblings, and you guys were literally all serving back in the cafeteria together that Easter. How does that happen? How do you get to that place? All the tension, all the weirdness of mm-hmm. it can set that aside to serve kids. God's grace. If I can show them the love of Christ by inviting them to dinner and celebrating their birthday and throwing a graduation party for Michaela to let her know that we love her, we could not do this without the love that he fills our heart with and the grace that he shows us. Yeah, we we have to show that to other people and share that with the people we love and care for because he does it for us every day. How could I not? Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Mom. You're welcome. Before I asked my mom to do this, she told me that no one needed to hear her story. And I just encouraged her that her story is a lot like a lot of yours. It's a lot like a lot of ours. I'm just so thankful that she would do that. And you watch this video and you, and you, you realize that the unconditional love that my mom longed for her whole life the peace that she was looking for, the strength she needed to raise teenagers alone, and I will add, not great teenagers, the grace to show the love of Christ to kids that aren't her own. Tell me any of that happens without Jesus. That doesn't exist without Jesus. And if you ever wondered why Collective exists, it's this. If you ever wonder why I believe in Jesus, it's because of stories like this, because I lived in that house. And so trust me when I say that our life before Jesus and after Jesus have been completely different because Jesus changes everything. When Jesus gets a hold of your life, when you let him into your story, it changes everything. It changes how you see yourself. It changes how you respond to the highs and lows of life. It changes your trajectory forever. And listen, I'm not saying that following Jesus makes everything easy because that's just not true, right? We know that. And some of you have been told this lie that when you put your faith in Jesus, everything becomes perfect again. And that's just not true, right? And I'm sorry that you've been told that. And I'm sorry that's created tension in your life and tension between you and God because it's just not a reality. Like even Jesus says that's not true. In John 16, 33, he says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. He promises peace. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. In my mom's story, following Jesus didn't fix her marriage like she had hoped. And for some people it will, and for some people it has, but not hers. It didn't change the hurt and pain she experienced from her mother and from the men in her life, but it did give her hope because she understood that Jesus would never walk away It did give her joy because she felt God's presence in the storms. It did give her peace because she knew that there was unconditional love, 
that came from a savior that was hers. And it did give her strength because she knew that everything she was facing in this world is temporary, but a relationship with Jesus is eternal. Right? And this is one of the reasons why every single week we challenge people who are not a follower of Jesus to put their faith in him. Right? And so if you are not someone who follows him, this is why you should let Jesus get a hold of your story. This is why you should put your faith in him, because he can change your life in ways you never imagined. Right? And every week, we're going to challenge you until this church doesn't exist anymore. Will you let him do that? It will not make the pain go away. It won't always make life easier, but it will make it better. Because following Jesus means that in the middle of the storms of life, there can and still will be peace and joy and hope because Jesus conquered the world. It means that you don't have to keep searching for unconditional love because it's always there. It means that you don't have to keep longing for grace because it's available. It means that you don't have to keep fighting for value because Jesus gave up his own life to show the value of yours. Right? And we want nothing more than for people to experience that. Right? And so this is why every single week we say, if you want that in your life, not an easy life. Right? I wish it was easy. If, if Jesus made everything perfect, this would be the biggest church in the world because everybody would want it. Right? It just makes it better. If that is something you are ready for, if that is something that you're looking for, check the baptism box in your connection card. We'll call you this week. We'll talk. What does it look like to allow Jesus into the middle of your life? During first service, we celebrated Brian as he got baptized. And Brian's been coming to Collective for years, and he's been wrestling with everything. If there's a thing about faith, he wrestled with it. But specifically, he's been wrestling a lot with whether or not he feels good enough for forgiveness, because he had a very, very, very messy past. He's been wrestling with whether or not he deserves grace and endless second chances. But a few weeks ago, Brian checked the baptism box, and so we called him to have a conversation. And this is what he told us. He said, I know I'm not perfect, and I'm never going to be. I've been seeking for years in many avenues, and I finally realized that Jesus is the way. And Brian has realized that it's not about being good enough or not having a past that's full of mistakes. It's all about the love of a Savior. Right? And so earlier this morning, he said, I want Jesus to be in the middle of that, not on the outside looking in, not something I do on Sunday mornings, but right in the middle of his story. I want to read one more verse uh, from the woman at the well. After experiencing Jesus and going back to town to tell everyone about it, John, who wrote this story down, shared this in verse 39. John wrote, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. You see, when Jesus gets a hold of our stories, it's not just our lives that change, but it's the people around us as well. But that only happens when we are real about our brokenness and what God is doing in our lives. That's why the imagery of this series is a key. And I'll explain this. In the fall of 2020, I met up with a few other church planters for a quick retreat. Um, if you remember anything about the fall of 2020, it sucked. It was the absolute worst. Um, and so here we were in the middle of trying to lead churches through COVID. Um, there's an upcoming election. There were racial tensions going on in America. And it was just crushing all of us. On top of that, all the pastors that were there, none of our churches were meeting in person yet. And so we'd been isolated from our communities. And it was a hard season. And we were feeling beat down, just like many of you were during that season. 
And one night, we had a guest speaker come to share. And before he talked, he actually handed each of us an uncut key. And he grabbed the key, uh, and he actually said something I'll never forget. Uh, he said, keys don't work if they haven't been cut. Right? Think about it. Without the peaks and valleys, this is just a small piece of metal. It cannot do anything. Right? Cannot open the door. Cannot let you out cannot bring you to another place. And then he shared that our lives and our stories are the same way. It is because of the peaks and valleys that our story can unlock so many things in our lives and the lives of others. It is the deep cuts, even the ones that we didn't ask for, even the ones that we didn't cause ourselves, but especially the ones that we did cause for ourselves. It is the deep cuts that open up the door for real and authentic and life-giving community for life and faith and church the way that God intended it to be. And so for over two years, I've kept this key on my keychain as a reminder that God can use the highs and lows in my life, right? The things that are a part of who I am, these things that are a part of my story that sometimes and most of the time I don't really want, God can use them. And so today as you leave, what we want you to do is we want you to grab a key. We want you to put it somewhere as a reminder that even though your life is full of peaks and valleys, ups and downs, highs and lows, that is your story. And God can use that story to change the world. Because when he gets a hold of it, it changes everything. Let's pray. God, I know... Um, I know there are a lot of people in this room who have been through just so much in life. God, they've experienced so much pain, um, so much anguish, so much loneliness, so much fear. Um, God, that this room, room is full of stories of people who have seen the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Um, God, that this room and this church is full of people who have felt really deep cuts. And God, what's crazy and really incredible about this is that you can take those things and turn them into something good. God, you can take our stories, you can take our lives, you can take our pain and our brokenness, you can take uh, all of those pieces and change the world just through our story. God, so I pray as we, we dig in, as we begin to wrestle with this idea that we have a story and it matters. God, I, I pray... God, I pray that we choose to share it. God, I pray that we choose vulnerability. I, I pray that we open ourselves up. Um, because while that is scary, because we could get wounded, God, we know that when we open ourselves up to let you in, incredible things happen. God, we're thankful for what you can do. God, we're thankful that you can take the lowest moments of our lives and, and turn them into moments where we feel you more than ever and really in, in the moments where somehow our story, as broken as it is, can lead other people to you. Um, but God, uh, we are willing and we are open and we are ready for you to do that. God, thank you so much for the ways that you love us um, and the fact that you're with us through everything. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.